Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello again, and welcome to the Aranex podcast for the 21st of September 2020. I'm Craig Eason, Managing Editor at Fathom.World, the news and information website focused on how the shipping, maritime and ocean industries are evolving. Now last week, the European Parliament voted on an amendment to proposals relating to the collection of emissions data for shipping. The vote effectively meant that the Parliament has now instructed the European Commission to bring shipping into the region's emissions trading scheme from the beginning of January 2022. We heard last week from Jutta Paulus, who had pushed through the proposals, proposals which also include a call for ships to improve their efficiency or cargo work by 40% by 2030. There's a lot more detail in the proposals which has been approved by the Parliament, but there are a few things to note here. It only applies to vessels over a certain size and on voyages to, from or between European ports. The proposal is based on the European Data Collection of Emissions. It's known as the MRV, Monitoring, Reporting and Verification. The 2018 data, the first year collected, has now been published and it showed that it had data from about 12,000 ships. That's only a portion of the global fleet. Regardless of this, the ship owner groups have been sceptical. They were sceptical before the Parliament vote and are sceptical still. However, they've also been sceptical in the past about proposals for market-based measures when they were discussed on an international level a few years ago. In a few minutes, we'll look at that international picture of shipping's greenhouse gases by talking to one of the lead authors of an update report on what shipping's global emissions are like and what they mean. But first back to Europe, with the Commission now being asked to work on how to pull those ships reporting into the European system, into the ETS, I asked the head of the European Community Ship Owners Association, Martin Dorsman, what he thinks this all means. EXA and the other ship owner groups have long decried the threat of local moves such as Europe's, hoping that the IMO will find a way forward despite its reputation of slow progress. Uh, well, that, that's actually a good question because there are some some things uh, in parallel uh, developing. Um, we now have this this vote on the well, actually it was the NRV uh, topic, but uh, there was now the topic of the EU ETS included in that uh, in that uh, review process and put it that way. Uh, so that's uh, complicating things. Uh, what we said about uh, impact assessments, uh, we, um, the normal procedure is that for such a fundamental proposal for the shipping industry, uh, one of the first steps would be an impact assessment to really have a good look at uh, what 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 this proposal might uh, might uh, <coughs> might have as consequences, and then uh, depending on the impact assessment, decide whether or not to adjust the proposal. And now we have this decision, and then uh, in one, one of the amendments says there should be an impact assessment. Oh, that's the wrong order of things, uh, we think. So um, the Commission is also working on uh, a proposal to include shipping in the ETS. So we are, wait for, we are waiting for the first step of the Commission to, to present the inception impact assessment, and then we will contribute to that uh, first step in the procedure. Do you think it's an inevitability that... Um 
there will be some sort of introduction of shipping into a carbon trading mechanism through Europe here and that that will have an impact on the global picture as the, um, the global development of solutions for shipping evolves. Yeah, that's, uh, well, I don't have a crystal ball, but uh, um, let me put it this way, that that our first, uh, um, let me say, that, uh, our first priority is always uh, to, to argue for global regulations, because what you say, we are a global industry. Uh, so that's why we, together with international stations, we urge IMO to take meaningful decisions uh, in, at, at MEPC late, uh, meeting later this year. Uh, so that that we can show to Europe that that IMO and that the shipping industry is delivering. Uh, in how far that will influence uh, European uh, regulatory process, that that depends. But what I can say, of course, uh, well, and that's 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 not uh, um, that's not something new. There's an enormous pressure uh, from EU institutions uh, to to regulate uh, the shipping industry. Um, also, the speech from the Lion today, uh, yeah, Europe uh, to take the lead. Um, I can understand that, but at the same time, we are global industry and we have the IMO. And I think that the IMO is making very good progress. Um, but, yeah. A lot of the green groups have long criticised, um, as you and I are aware, the speed of the IMO. Do you think that this decision from Europe will be an impetus to speed up what's going on at the IMO, or do you think it'll be a distraction? Well, we, we we argue for the for the EU to to play a very uh, proactive, ambitious role within the IMO to uh, to to contribute positively to this uh, IMO process. Um, the EU also uh, is saying that they are doing that. Um, well, hopefully, they are succeeding in that. But it's it's very hard uh, to to say how exactly it will influence the IMO process. We are afraid, of course, that that it will have negative impact. And if other regions in the world uh, will also introduce their own regional measures, then yeah, we are moving into a very suboptimal and ineffective uh, patchwork of, uh, of regional measures. And that's the last thing we we aim for, of course. But on the flip side of that, there have been talks about finding ways to harmonise the various existing emissions trading schemes that already exist around the world. The, the European system is by far the largest one, but I gather there's 20 different emissions trading schemes, or more than 20, around the world. Um, by introducing an international industry like shipping into this, is there not the possibility that this then becomes itself a part of a global mechanism eventually? Well, well my experience, in, in, in generally speaking, with trying to, to harmonize different systems, everybody's thinking that their system is the best. So that makes uh, harmonization uh, a very difficult uh, practice, uh, generally speaking. And I don't think that will be different for, for this topic. So, um, and I think it's 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 not the the, the right order. We, sh we should start with global regulations and not start with re regional measures and then try to try to harmonise and integrate them. Um, so, um, yeah. 
I'm not so confident that that will actually uh, deliver a system that will work for the shipping industry. Uh, and another part of the, and this isn't actually in the um, discussion about the MRV amendment, but I've heard within the um, New Green Deal and the proposals that came out during the summer, there's this discussion of a uh, carbon border mechanism or a carbon border tax. Do you think this will have any impact on the shipping industry? Well, that that's actually another good question um, because it's it's it refers. Uh, of course, we asked the Commission what exactly is is the and uh, um, um, the goal of of this instrument, and will it apply to shipping? Will it apply to services? Well, the, the answer back was it it will only apply to goods, uh, so shipping should not be uh, part of that uh, that mechanism. Um, but uh, that's that's the state of play today. So I don't know how that will develop. So, but that's what's, what what the reaction of the Commission was uh, some months ago. Martin Dorsman, Secretary General of the European Community Shipowners Association, on the complications facing shipping in the ETS and the threat of mandatory reductions and the possibility of a carbon border mechanism. I'd also like to mention another small paragraph on the proposal the Parliament voted on last week. It's to have a label on goods to show how clean the ship was that the goods came by. Again, this may change and indeed it may prove to be politically impossible. But it is worth noting because it sees how the Parliament now seeks public opinion as a possible influencer on shipping's decarbonisation efforts. Now, after a short pause, we'll hear about some of the global efforts, notably the work to measure shipping's global greenhouse gas footprint. But before that, this. Hi, I'm Christina Dupre-Roos from Blue Sea. Read my insight into the Oslo Maritime Cluster on the Fathom website and why I find this industry so fascinating. Many lobby groups will point an accusatory finger at shipping, saying how dirty it is, how high its greenhouse gas emissions are, and largely how reluctant to change it is. The comparison of shipping's emissions to countries always turns up. It's easy to do, but largely irrelevant and I think somewhat misleading, given shipping belongs to so many countries. But what we do have is a fairly regular assessment of global shipping's greenhouse gas emissions. The fourth iteration was published in the summer, but I think has largely been ignored, partly because the IMO has failed to have any of its meetings to discuss environmental issues, and partly because there have been lots of other news stories catching the news headlines. The IMO is trying to catch up on its cancelled meetings due to the uh, COVID restrictions and one of the Marine Environmental Protection Committee meetings is scheduled to take place soon. It'll continue to work to find short-term and of course those long-term measures to decarbonise the industry. We've covered it and covered a lot of these stories on Fathom World and in previous episodes of the podcast. So. With the fourth greenhouse gas study likely to play a key role in assessing the way to reach those targets, I wanted to know a little bit more about it, and who other than one of the key authors of the report? I'm Jasper Faber, I'm with CE Delft, I am director of our maritime work. I've been working in the field of maritime transport and climate change for over 15 years now. 
Jasper Faber from CE Delft was one of the lead authors of the fourth greenhouse gas study and works with many shipping groups looking at decarbonisation research. These are very fascinating times. Um, since since the, the Paris Agreement and then uh, subsequent to that, the, the initial IMO greenhouse gas strategy, it's all the 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 amount of work has has increased tremendously, but it's, there's also the feeling that that we're working on this uh, on this very fundamental transformation of the shipping sector, going from let's say the fossil fuel era where we're currently in, to the new renewable fuel era. That we don't know what it will look like, um, and and how to. The, the, the fascinating question for me is how we can make this transition happen in a, in a, in a sensible way that is as that that is not disruptive in the sense that that global trade or um, economies are affected much by it or any more by it than than needs to be. A part of this has been the um, involvement with the IMO uh, greenhouse gas study. This is now in its fourth iteration. The fourth one was published over the summer and made publicly available. Why have there been four? Can you tell me, let's go back to the beginning with the IMO greenhouse gas studies. Where did this idea come from that there had to be this study and how have these four evolved over time? The, the first one was in 2000 and that was the follow-up to an assembly resolution at the IMO, I think from... 1997 if I'm not mistaken um, that helped uh, I think the, the MEPC to have a, a, a common understanding a common basis of the quantity of emissions and where they're how, how they were evolving and the, the talks at that time progressed very slowly so by the time by the time that I got aware of, of IMO work around 2005-2006 there was a, a discussion starting on market-based measures, but results from the first IMO greenhouse gas study or the IMO greenhouse gas study were kind of outdated by then. And it was decided to have a second IMO greenhouse gas study. We were part of that one. I think the work initiated in 2007 and it, it was published in 2009. And then uh, around 2012, there was... A, a, a new need to at least have a, a good inventory of uh, of how shipping emissions had evolved. Work started in 2012, report was published in 2014, the, the third one. And now when uh, the MEPC embarked on this process to um, first agree on the initial strategy, but also to... Um, uh, after the conclusion of the of the strategy to develop uh, measures to address greenhouse gas emissions of shipping, uh, there was a new need for updated information. The fourth IMO greenhouse gas study is the, is the first one where uh, the inventory is exclusively built or based on um, on satellite AIS data, and um, on top of that. Uh, at, that, that is the, the inventory is also the basis for uh, the carbon intensity estimates that, that we provided. And a lot of those estimates are also based on um, satellite AIS data. You've been able to compare some of that data with the European MRV 
data, which is now which has been made publicly available, or rather, the consolidated information has been made publicly available. How did those two compare? How does the fourth report and the MRV data compare? Yeah, so I, I think I can explain that best by by um, first starting to explain uh, the methodology of how the inventory work um, estimates the emissions of a single ship. It, it has the AIS data, so it knows uh, where a ship is sailing and how fast it is, it is sailing based on the AIS. And then we have, um, uh, and, and from um, other data sources, we know what type of ship it is and what, what the engine power is, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we combine those two pieces of information in a model that then, um, based on, on naval architecture, um, uh, uh, understanding of, of how ships work, calculates the amount of energy and also the fuel consumption of that ship and then translate that fuel consumption into, um, into emissions. One of the uh, challenges is going to be how the IMO actually comes up with this long-term strategy and the different ways that carbon intensity can be defined or used, I guess could become one of those political deep questions where you're dotting the I's and crossing the T's with meticulous care and getting down to a lot, a lot of extreme detail. One of the things that I saw that happened in about 2009-10 when countries at the IMO were debating the market-based measures there was a lot of procrastination and that led to a lot of things happening slowly. Are you concerned that this potential detailed discussion could also lead to a slowdown in progress at the IMO, particularly when we're talking about an IMO that has difficulty currently under the restrictions actually having physical meetings? Are we going to get bogged down in so much meticulous detail again? That, that, that is a, a very interesting question. And of course, um, I can only speculate on the answer, but, but um, um, the, and, and the, the choice on the, on the carbon intensity indicator has very severe consequences for uh, what ships need to do. Uh, so it has consequences for the shipping sector and, and perhaps even for, uh, the, the, for world trade. Uh, so, so it is a, a very important choice to be made. Um, ultimately, it's it's a choice that needs to be made at at the political level because uh, we as uh, researchers can only say, okay, if you choose A, this is what you get, and if you choose B, this is what you get. Um, and and it's a political choice, uh, and that will be informed by assessments of of what countries think shipping can achieve and and how. Uh, how important they find um, uh, climate change, addressing climate change relative to, um, uh, to making sure that the, the shipping sector can continue to thrive. Um, I think there, there's one fundamental difference be, uh, between now and, and 2009-2010 when I was also around at, at the IMO and that is that the initial strategy sets clear milestones um, and, and by 2030 um, 
a result has to be achieved. Um, that wasn't the case in, in, uh, in, in 2009, 2010. Uh, there was no clear vision of, of how uh, shipping would need to develop. So there were, there were uh, several discussions were mixed. Eh? There, there was no, um, there were no strategic goals on which everybody agreed. And then there was this discussion on what is the best uh, MBM, but if you don't have a goal, uh, what, what do you want to achieve with the MBM? It's very hard to have the discussion. Now at least the goals are clear. Um, uh, there, there's a timeline, um, and I hope this will focus the minds on uh, reaching a compromise uh, of, of uh, what, what needs to happen. With respect to this fourth IMO greenhouse gas report, um, I've seen a lot of other bodies now begin to utilise it. Are you quite pleased to see that the report itself isn't just being seen as an IMO product, but is actually being read and disseminated and used in the broader, wider debate about shipping and shipping uh, decarbonisation? We have um, developed this report with a... Um, uh, I think a world-class consortium um, spanning the globe. So we had people contributing from China, from Japan, um, from uh, Brazil, from um, the US, from uh, several countries in Europe, um, all um, people that are, that are well-renowned in, their, in, their, um, in, in this field. And um, I, I, I think it is a very high quality report. So I'm, I'm very glad that it is not seen as a IMO report, but as a, a, a report that, that has quality and is reliable and, and trustworthy. Um, not only in, in, the, in the wider shipping community, but it's also, and that was the case with the previous IMO studies as well, it's also the IMO's contribution to um, the UNFCCC. Yeah? So it's, it's more detailed information on uh, what the shipping sector has done and, and, um, uh, and, and is emitting than is available in the IPCC reports, yeah? which are focusing more on uh, land-based emissions in general. Do you, do you see the shipping debate becoming more entwined with that general societal debate about decarbonisation um, and the, the future goals within the Paris Agreement? Yeah, I, I think that, that is, uh, it is undeniable that um, the one, one of the reasons why the IMO um, has an initial strategy now is because of the, of the Paris Agreement. Um, so it, it fits within that broader political perspective. That that is the let's say the the policy side of it. But um, it is also clear uh, that more and more uh, shippers um, are demanding information uh, uh, on the carbon intensity of of transport, um, and uh, and and uh, I'm. Perhaps that, that request for information was longer there, but, but I'm hearing from, from several sides that, that there are now initiatives of collaboration between um, shipping companies and shippers where uh, the, the shippers do not only require information, but are also willing to pay for um, decarbonizing transport. And I think that's a, 
a, a very hopeful sign, and I I, I hope um, that will that will continue. But but so the the answer yes, um, uh, the the shipping community, um, IMO, but also um, the the shipping companies, um, uh, shippers. Um, are getting more and more aware of the need to decarbonize and, and it's, it's, it fits in the, into that debate. Yes. That was Jasper Faber from CE Delft talking to me about the development of the greenhouse gas reports for the IMO as it discusses the pathway to decarbonizing the shipping industry, both the short-term measures and the long-term measures that need to be discussed. That's it for this week. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast through your favourite app and go to fathom.world, see some of the stories that we're reporting on and subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Until the next time, goodbye.